The prevalence of trusts being used as business and succession vehicles. The issues are often not tax issues as much as they are issues arising because of a misunderstanding of trust and trust law. That is often the basics that really lead to these problems. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 155 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. It is really easy to make basic mistakes around trusts. And it is these basic mistakes that often cause the biggest headaches and they're expensive to fix. But like most basic mistakes, they're easy to make, but also easy to avoid. And that is what Paul Golden of Vectigal in Melbourne will talk about over the next two episodes. A Trust 101. Basic mistakes to avoid in a trust. Trusts are incredibly complex. I deal with trusts often, whilst um, tax is my primary area of practice. A lot of the tax issues arise because of the, um, the prevalence of trusts being used as business and succession vehicles. And the issues are often not tax issues as much as they are issues arising because of a misunderstanding of trust and trust law. Yeah, so they're usually legal issues you deal with and not tax issues. Correct. Correct. Usually tax, uh, yes. well, I suppose both are legal issues because tax <laughs> really right. very much is a legal, um, a, a legal issue, though people don't understand that or think of it, but they are tax law issues, non-tax. So tax issues arise out of them, but they are trust law issues. And it's usually the simple things, or what we often think of as being the simple things, where people slip up and where their advisors slip up. Now, when I talk about advisors, Heidi, I'm talking about legal advisors, tax advisors, business advisors. So I talk about tax professionals or business advisors very broadly because the misconceptions and the misunderstandings are as often other legal professionals as it is tax agents or accountants. So I think that's very important for people to understand and particularly for tax agents to understand that they need to be aware of the trust law issues in dealing with taxpayers. Yes, Paul, is trust law state law? Trust law is state law. So each state is different. It's based on the common law. There are statutory provisions in each state which many of them very much align with each other, but uh, the pointed differences are where, where it can be difficult. South Australia is notable in its differences. No statutory of limitation. Correct, correct. There have been voices that have said that with the power of attorney, because it is also state law, you should really get a new power of attorney when you move from one state to another. Is it similar with trusts? I mean, it can't be because you can't have to redo the trust deed every time you move state. Not really. And it raises issues about whether you're um, what's often referred to as resettling. Now, resettling is very much a term that's been coined not from in trust purposes, but it's come out of 
duties legislation and resettling trusts and then been co-opted by tax law. In other words, the tax office as a term of reference. But at trust law, there's no such thing as actually resettling the trust. But the issue is very much, if we just talk about it colloquially, that if you start moving around the trust as to whether you're actually resettling the trust for tax or duty purposes in another jurisdiction. So the fact that the beneficiaries, for example, are in another jurisdiction, or for example, that um, directors of a trustee might be in a different jurisdiction, doesn't necessarily mean that the trust has moved in jurisdiction. This is particularly important when the assets of the trust might remain in, say, Victoria, even though, so for example, you might have a property that's in Victoria over which there's a trust, but mom and dad might have moved to Sydney or New South Wales. And you'd need to be very cautious about going off and um, changing the jurisdiction of the trust um, just because people have moved to another jurisdiction. So it's really about where the trust assets are. It's really about the assets. Well, yes, I think that's one of the questions. There might be other things. There might be things like where, you know, for example, where, where business is being conducted. And that's the other important thing, Heidi, is that it depends on the legislation you're looking at and as to what becomes relevant. So something that one really needs to be abreast of these days as an advisor is that it's not just income tax. It's also duties, but not only duties. It's also things like payroll tax. Um, payroll tax is um, becoming an, an enormous issue in a number of states, and all of them have very different tests as to what might be, for example, a business in that state. So you might, for example, have a trust in Victoria, but it's carrying on business and it might be caught by the payroll provisions in Queensland. And just because the trust is resides in or has its jurisdiction in Victoria doesn't mean that the business isn't covered by Queensland payroll legislation. So it becomes a very complicated area in that you've got to start looking at, at all the different aspects, not only, say, the common law, but a multitude of different legislations. It's really what I call Trust 101. They're really important things that we all see, but that unfortunately as a practitioner, I get to see where things have gone wrong often. And it's easy for me to be smug and look in um, retrospect in that I'm looking at it in, um, in hindsight. It's always easier to look at it in hindsight rather than as to what's actually happening at the time when things are taking place. Having seeing it in hindsight, I often see the mistakes that take place. And um, a lot of the mistakes are quite often easily rectified. It's just that not sufficient attention has been placed on the basics. And it's often the basics that cause expensive mistakes down the line. So, you know, it's getting the basics right that we keep on hearing and, and paying lip service to, but are really worth noting. It's, it, it, the important thing with trust is that at your end, and I can't stress this enough, that normal, you know, your standard um, tax files are not just wrote, sort of completed from one year to the next. The people who are preparing the files and the returns actually go back to the trust deeds and the amendments and request them because more often than not, somewhere along the line, 
nobody's reviewed those trust deeds. Nobody's gone back to have a look at whether there have been any amendments made, whether it's actually been done correctly in the first instance. And that's often the problem. And, and this p- becomes particularly prevalent where you've got, as many families and mis- businesses do, multiple entities and multiple trusts where you've got distributions between the different trusts and you've got transactions between the different trusts which start to become entwined. And that's leaving aside the complex areas of things like Division 7A. It's just questions as to, well, do you even have effective trust distributions? Um, So if we go back to whether you even have a trust, the number of times one comes with trusts, and I think taking a step back, just for practitioners that might not be aware, you don't actually need a trust deed to have a trust. For example, we've got the Aussie golfer case last year where the full federal court found that there was a trust, a subtrust in that case. It had um, resulted, even though that particular trust didn't have its own signed um, trust deed, it actually was on the same um, terms as what we would call the main trust. And in that case, it actually had uh, superannuation issues that arose out of the separate trust being created. Um, but if we sort of go back to the sort of lead case, which is commercial nominees, you really got to look in each case, whether you've got the trustees or you've got intention, are there rules that govern it? So traditionally, that's where the trust deed comes in, is that you can point to a deed and it's evidentiary that, hey, here's a deed, here's what the governing rules are, and the intention has been set out in there. And for example, you might have the assets where a $10 or something has been attached to the deed. But it's important that not all trusts that have a trust deed that are signed are in fact trusts. They haven't always been established. And there are a number of cases that are, that are in existence. For example, the one in Victoria, there was a 2012 case called Aston. And, and a number of these cases deal with where, for example, you've had advisors that um, have created trust. So you've got the signed trust deeds. And then the uh, settled sum, supposedly, has actually been um, invoiced out and paid back to the settler, who was, for example, the secretary or the advisor or somebody in the advisory firm. And uh, the person who, the real person behind the trust, as I often colloquially refer to it, mom or dad, has gone off and paid back the settler on the deed. And you now have this real question as to whether you've actually had a trust established or if there's been a trust established, was it established at some later time with a different settler? And these are real problems. And and, and Aston's an example of that case where where it came out. And there've been a number of these cases in various different jurisdictions. There's one in Queensland as well, although I can't think of the name offhand. So there really are a lot of problems that often not really borne out in practice where people don't realize the high risk they're leading. Fortunately, what's happened is that the tax office is becoming far more aware of a lot of these trust issues. At times, in my experience, far more aware of the issues than a lot of practitioners are. And there again, I'm referring to legal and accounting practitioners they're still living in a world where, well, we can, we've done this all the time. We can continue to do it and nobody really cares. Well, no, that's not the world anymore. Unfortunately, the world has changed. 
and the authorities are becoming increasingly sophisticated and understand. And you often find that very early on you head in with, for example, documents to the tax office in a review, and they will come back with questions as to whether things are effective. And particularly where it's in the tax office's favour rather than the taxpayer's favour, where, you know, Section 102 of the 36 Act and, um, you know, the cases like Hobbs and Truesdale where they talk about whether the settler should be a can or can't be a potential benefit, sure. And because of Section 102, it's generally preferred to make sure that the settler isn't a potential beneficiary. But that gives rise to a number of other things that you often find in trustees, but notional settlers. And it's often overlooked because a notional settler is often excluded as a beneficiary. It's likewise positions such as trustees or directors of a trustee, appointors, guardians, protectors, and a number of other catchphrases or offices. They're likewise often excluded as beneficiaries in the deed. So that means that even though mom or dad is not named as the settler on the trustee document as the person who gave the original $10, mom or dad might have given or grandfather might have given the property, the actual money or the actual property that's been put on trust to the trust, which means that that person is now excluded as a beneficiary unless they are correctly appointed. Now, unfortunately, appointed isn't what people often think it is, colloquialism. So generally, I've had people say, oh, but dad was appointed because dad was in the distribution unit. Dad was distributed to, and we appointed to dad in the distribution unit. And unfortunately, that's not an appointment. An appointment is what it says in the deed. And often that requires either something in writing where you, where the trustee explicitly appoints dad as a beneficiary or dad's named as a primary beneficiary. Uh, and, and there again, Heidi, it's really interesting because the deed might say he's named as a primary beneficiary and the person drafting the deed might have named dad, and I'm thinking of a particular case at the moment, where dad was named as a specified beneficiary. So they were two different types of beneficiary. Dad was named as a specified beneficiary, not as a primary beneficiary, which means that if you read the deed literally, dad was an excluded beneficiary or arguably an excluded beneficiary. And if you really wanted to make sure that dad was a beneficiary, you would have to then go through the appointment provisions, which required a deed of appointment and having dad appointed as a beneficiary as a primary beneficiary. That's an exceptional case. But there are often cases where you need to go through and you need to appoint or nominate a beneficiary before they can actually become a beneficiary. Just taking a step back, for a trust to be established, and I'll refer the readers back to the well-known case of commercial nominees, which is a 2001 High Court case. And there have been a number of cases that have followed commercial nominees. But for a trust to be established, you require trustees, an intention, which is often referred to in the governing rules. You need rules on which the trust is established. You need assets and you need identifiable beneficiaries or members or identifiable objects. So usually objects are things like where you've got a charitable trust and you've got certain objects for which the, the trust will be a benefit. 
I think for the present purposes of this podcast and discussion, we'll be talking about identifiable beneficiaries as members members of the family or the broader family group. Not the word object, because the word object is really confusing, because it's actually people the objects, isn't it? Correct, correct. People or organizations. So that's where the term object comes out of. Yeah, and I think the word object is before the distribution has been made, and then afterwards they are beneficiaries, aren't they? Yes, correct. Another question, coming back to the Aussie golfer, Yes. Was that the case about the student flat? Yes, that's right. That I was the case about the student flat. That gets often quoted in the context of SMSF that there was an issue around the sole purpose test. Correct. So the whole issue there was that they had this idea that it was part of a broader trust so that there wasn't the sole purpose of um, a related party and um, the person that was in that trust, um, there was really this umbrella trust and the idea was that um, it wouldn't have breached the related party rules because that person didn't have the whole, uh, it, it wasn't the, the whole of the ownership. trust asset. Yeah. Um, whereas if there was the sub-trust that was created and was this separate trust, then suddenly you had this separate trust that was then leasing out and renting it out to uh, the student who happened to be a related person and whatnot. So the whole question at law was really about this question of whether you had this resulting trust, a separate trust that had been created or not been created. And if there was a separate trust that had been created, then you might or might not have this breach of super rules. Um, So the threshold question is actually far broader than SMSFs and super, it actually goes to, well, was there a trust created? And it just highlights the fact that you can have a trust created where you don't have a written trust deed. So it might be created on um, on the same um, governing rules that are in the broader trust, but it's actually a separate trust. So where this has application, for example, and it actually sort of alludes to some of the the positions that the tax office was putting up in respect of Division 7A and uh, having subtrust, is that in many deeds, and it's a really interesting question and probably starts to go beyond the, the purposes of the pod discussion, but a lot of trusts actually talk about where amounts are set aside or distributed and appointed to beneficiaries is that those amounts be kept on separate trust for those beneficiaries. So what we're talking about unpaid present entitlements, there raises this really interesting thing that if the trust, for example, starts earning more money, so let's talk about a really simple position where you've got a trust that has a rental property and you've set aside a certain portion of money for uh, as unpaid present entitlements. Under the trustee, you might actually have a situation where you've actually got now certain members that have certain subtrusts with certain amounts. The question is now whether they should be earning some of that money at some stage out of that trust, whether you're now, you should actually be treating each of those trusts separately. And depending on the terms of the trustee, whether any of those subtrusts is such 
should be earning money separately and those earnings are absolutely entitled to particular beneficiary. Now, we can't make it broad generalization because each trust deed is different, but there are situations where, um, where that's a real problem. And it's not one that generally is discussed and talked about. It's a very high level problem, but at some stage I expect that it might become a more pressing problem, particularly okay. where the, the authorities start to consider it. Yeah. Um, I apologize. What was the problem with whether dad is appointed or not? So the, the problem with whether dad's appointed or not is that often you have these notional settlers, the real settler, what I call them, the people who've put the real money in. Officially, who, or they have given it to the accountant and then... So well, if, um, whether, whether they've actually done a deed or gift or not, but it's sitting in the trust, that's what the real... Because usually, let's go back to what happens in practice. Um, person X um, settles the trust, is named the settler in the deed for $10. And that's They're usually the, the accountant. Settler. Yeah, usually the accountants are something, which is where it raises the whole question as to whether you've actually got a trust because the accountant's been paid the $10, so they haven't actually settled the $10. Um, but let's leave that aside. Then you have mom, dad, or grandfather who actually puts the real money into the trust. Whether that's actually been done correctly or not, let's leave that as a moot point, um, as an aside. But it's always been accounted for in the trust and it's treated as trust assets. And uh, there's a good uh, argument that it is the trust assets and the trust is there and it's got this property there. That's the business or the property in Turak or Point Piper or wherever. The person who put that property or gave that property to the trust is also a settler under a number of deeds they would often be referred to as the notional settler or as I refer to them as the real settler of the trust. That person might be, or it might be other people who are trustees, appointers, guardians, and just because of their position in those offices, they would likewise be excluded as beneficiaries. Now, often because their name is not, say in the case of a notional or real settler, isn't in the deed as the real person, it's not on the deed. So whoever's putting together the return or going through the accounting pack doesn't see that dad's a settler because they look at the front page of the deed and say, oh, well, no, it's somebody else. I have no idea who this person is. Oh, great. We're all right. Without taking it a step further and thinking, well, where did the real assets in the trust come from? And is there anything in the deed that says that person is excluded as a beneficiary? And then going to the next step and saying, well, if they're excluded, is there a reason they should be included as a beneficiary? So, for example, many would say that if they're a named beneficiary as a primary beneficiary or a specified beneficiary, that they would then be okay as beneficiaries of the trust. So the problem is that dad is appointed as a beneficiary. So, so it's not that, it's more, more correctly, Heidi, is that dad hasn't been appointed as a beneficiary, but a distribution has been made or, 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 or they've purported to make a distribution to dad. I see. Because they've looked at the broad class of beneficiaries and said, oh, dad is in the class of beneficiaries, dad can be um, distributed too. 
is it different to being a specified beneficiary or being an appointed beneficiary? Because often the deed clearly may, means that if you're an excluded beneficiary, there are certain steps that you have to go to. And being a member of the general class doesn't mean that you're in, not excluded. So you're excluded from the general class until you do X, Y, and Z. And usually that is a deed of appointment or a deed of nomination as a beneficiary, or in some more recent deeds, it might just be a written nomination by the trustees. Sometimes it requires approval and ratification by the appointor. But the important point here is that you actually have to do something, and usually it's in writing, before you make the distribution to make dad a beneficiary. But this whole problem is only because dad was the settler. If dad hadn't been the settler, then he would have been in the general class of beneficiaries Correct. and it would have been easy for the accountant to distribute to him. But if somebody yes. is a settler, then they require a specific appointment as a beneficiary. Correct. And if they Correct. have this specific appointment, then it is no longer a problem that they were also the settler? Yes, then it's okay. But where it becomes even more problematic is where you've got these groups of trusts. And you might have the appointment in one trust, but it might exclude dad from being a beneficiary in another trust, or more correctly, it might exclude the other trust from trust one making a distribution to trust two. Yes. So what's happened is that you've got this mismatch, although it's not apparent on a sort of just a superficial reading of the trust deeds and having a look at the general clauses or who might be a primary beneficiary in the schedule, but you've got this real mismatch where trust one can't distribute to trust two. And where that often becomes very live is where you've got somebody who is the trustee of the one trust, but that trustee could be a beneficiary of the second trust because dad and mom own the shares or dad and mom are the directors. And because the trustee as trustee is an excluded beneficiary of trust one, but is a beneficiary, potential beneficiary of trust two, you can't distribute to trust two. Now, if I had a dollar for the number of times that I've seen this happen in practice where those distributions are void, not voidable, void. In other words, they're not effective. It just boggles the mind how often this happens. That can be very expensive because if the distribution is void, it means the trustee is taxed on the... on the. Um... Oh, it can be incredibly expensive, Heidi, because depending on who the default beneficiaries are or what the trust says... Again, you're right. It could mean that the trust is taxed as the trustee under 99A rather than an individual beneficiary. Yes. And, and these are issues that the tax office is incredibly alive to. And these are really the issues that I was referring to before where practitioners are not often as alive to the real issues as the tax office is. And practitioners need to start becoming aware of the what I refer to as 101, going back to the trustee and actually reading who are included beneficiaries and who are excluded. So those are really simple things that people are getting wrong over do and you, over again. Do you find that the ATO only looks at the trustee and distributions, etc., when they're auditing a trust anyway? Well, what happens is often, for example, there might be a large capital gain and it might be through a request for information on all business concessions. But because the tax office are becoming far more sophisticated, they will ask for this information and they'll ask for the trustee as part of that. And the first thing they come to realize is that, hang on, they don't even need to go after the small business concessions. 
they just need to tra- tax the trust, the initial trust at the at the source, because, because everything in sundry hasn't been distributed through, or they weren't entitled to distribute through. So why have to go through the whole rigmarole of going through the difficulties when um, it's very easy for them to just do a 99A assessment? Hmm. And unfortunately, we get tied up in the complexities without going back to 101 and looking at the basics. And those are incredibly expensive mistakes. So would an easy rule of thumb be if debt contributes the home into it, although one probably shouldn't put a home into a trust anyway, because then you, <laughs> then you lose the main residence exemption. But let's say debt puts the assets into the trust. Should one then as a rule of thumb just never make him a beneficiary and just make mum a beneficiary and then no, marry his children? I, th- I think the important thing there is, there are a number of important takeouts Heidi, and look, each case, I'm going to do the lawyer thing, each case it needs to be dealt with on its own back. But every time somebody makes a gift to the trust, the trustee needs to be reviewed and one needs to consider whether that person is going to be a potential beneficiary. And if so, do you need to go through some process of appointing that person? Or if you've got a new trustee, is that person going to need to be able to benefit? Look at that. Increasingly, as families have broader number of trusts, so where they've got two, three plus trusts, they need to be very cognizant of anything that they do with one trust might very much affect their ability to distribute to other trusts. And that's particularly, so for example, perpetuity periods, which we might address here, in that um, you've got the potential that transactions distributed to a trust that has been set up later might or might not be effective. And the reason I say that is it depends on, first of all, the trust acts and the um, in the various states and when those came in. So, for example, in Victoria, you might have trusts that were established before 1968. And a lot of those were established, say, in farming company farming families for estate duty purposes and death duties at a certain time. So for other reasons, and they were established before 68, which means that the statutory period of perpetuity and the rules surrounding perpetuity don't apply to those trusts, which means that you can't rely on the so-called wait and see rule. And a distribution made to a trust that was set up later is likely to exceed the perpetuity period and therefore be void. That means the distribution is not valid. So there are a number of issues that you need to look at. One of the ways of addressing that is any later trust where you've got a main head trust, any later trust is established or where it's already been established, the period or the life of the trust is amended to bring it in line with the head trust. Now, that can be problematic because if you've got a head trust that's already vested or is about to vest, it might defeat the whole purpose of why you were trying to create a new trust. But these are real live issues that people need to be aware of and they need to consider them before going off and making your end distributions because the consequences of making an invalid distribution can be significant. The other thing that's uh, very important to consider and in question as to what is required for an effective appointment. So there was a 2005 case called Idlecroft, and it's really worth 
practitioners going back and reading Idlecroft because it is the, to use it colloquially, it's the benchmark on what is required to make an effective appointment to beneficiaries or distribution to beneficiaries. And the court was very, very outspoken and said, you need to do what the trustee says. So for example, if you have to make a, um, and it might not just be distribution minutes, which everybody assumes makes an appointment of beneficiaries, but to appoint a beneficiary, and that might, for example, be mom who might be a member of the class. And this is not dealing with excluded beneficiaries, somebody who's explicitly excluded. But the trust, for example, might say that it can distribute to, uh, you know, the broader family, you know, spouses and uh, parents and everybody else of, say, named beneficiaries. But often what the trust says is that you've got to do certain things to appoint that person to be a beneficiary. So it doesn't matter that they fall within the class of beneficiaries and merely going and making a distribution to that person doesn't make them a beneficiary. And Idlecroft says, well, no, if the deed's specific about what it says you need to do to make that person a beneficiary, then before you can start distributing to mom, you've actually got to make her a beneficiary. And that there again might mean going off and making a deed of nomination to nominate mom as or appoint mom as a beneficiary. And you'll find that often mom has been distributed for 20 years and nobody's gone off and made that nomination. And you arise, you're left with this very untenable situation. So what <laughs> often, happens? Oh, well, often it's not even a tax problem. Often it becomes a massive family problem as to how you deal with this. Because often mom thought she had all these beneficiary, you know, these entitlements. And none of those entitlements are really valid. Um, so, and and how know, is it treated under tax? Well, under tax, it depends on the trustee. There again, you might find that it's, um, it should have been assessed under 99A. So you might be going back within the review period to look at who's um, been assessed yeah. um, or who should have been assessed. So and it, it, it might would mean, go back two or four years, but not 25 years. Well, it would go back four years because you're dealing with a beneficiary of a trust. Oh, okay. And, and Yazbek says that that's four years. So you're probably looking at four-year amendment periods, which you might cap the period in which the tax office can go back. But for family issues, it can be a lot, far larger problem than that, um, where you're dealing with things where um, people have an expectation as to what they were entitled to and now find that, well, no, they were never entitled to it. So I have a situation I dealt with a number of years ago where mom and dad had set up the trust. Mom was... Um, the third spouse of dad and thought she was also a beneficiary of the trust. And they um, he established a phenomenal business in the trust that was later sold off. And we're talking tens of millions. And mom discovered that she had never been appointed as a beneficiary. So her 50-50 share that they had always talked about in this business was not her share at all because she was never entitled to anything under the trust. And that was a major problem because at the time this was discovered, there was acrimony already in the family. So these issues can um, really put advisors in, um, in a big mess. So did mum ever get any money or that was... Look, that was rectified at the, uh, I shouldn't use the legal term, but was sorted out at a family position at large expense. 
And sometimes these things are at large expense and sometimes they can't be corrected. But the issue is, is that it, often the advisors that are put at pains in that case, unfortunately, uh, it came at the expense of the advisors at that time who I think had a significant PI claim against them. Um, so, so these things can be very unfortunate. Uh, I don't like to get involved and I don't get involved in PI claims. But unfortunately, that's often how these things come to be because the aggrieved party goes off to insurers. Welcome back. So this was the first part of Paul Golden's Trust 101 review. In the next episode, episode 156, Paul Golden will continue his review and focus on family trust groups, trust distributions and the role of the appointer. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.